0: Hello and welcome to Movement, a weekly podcast for South Aussie Baptists to listen and imagine together. Each fortnight, Melinda Cousins interviews a leader from within our movement and then asks them to share one of their recent sermons with us the following week. Well, I'm back with Steve Woods. Last week we had a chat about his uh, role with Baptist World Aid, but also some of the stuff that he's learning and how it relates to mission here on the ground. Uh, so today Steve's back to se- to share a sermon with us. Steve, can you tell us why did you choose this sermon to share? Uh, this is a sermon that I, uh, uh, I guess, it sums up a bit of the heart of what uh, what I what really I'm passionate about, and that is how. Um, we have to live out our faith in a way that's uh, it's, it's based, on, uh, based on a passage from James that talks about you know true spirituality mm-hmm. is that we care for the orphan and the widow in their distress that mm-hmm. that spirituality is not just about what we believe or this private thing we have but it actually impacts the way we live in, in our local communities but also uh, how we address the issues of global poverty so um, something I'm really passionate about and um, I hope uh, comes across quite well. Mm, great. Is there anything else that'd be good for us to know as we prepare to listen to it? Uh, so it was. It was. It was a Baptist World Day deputation that I preached. Uh, preached it just a few weeks ago at, uh, at Kings Baptist up at Golden Grove and. Um, Uh, It sounds a bit, probably sounds a bit relaxed actually. That's because I knew quite a few people in the church. So I felt a bit like preaching at home, but it was also preached in COVID conditions. So everyone's spaced out and uh, spaced out. Everyone is physically distanced. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's physically distanced and uh, it was live streamed as well. And so um, it's a bit of an unusual environment, but um, uh, they were a great bunch of people. It was good to be with them on that day. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to hearing it and trusting we'll be encouraged and challenged. Thanks, Melinda i came to a realization over, over time but um but a number of years ago now that we're really good at church of um we're really good at doing things for each other <laughs> we're really good at um thinking about things we're really good about Talking about things. And sometimes we're not so good about doing things. And I, you know, I, I was a pastor in a normal church for a long time and realized how much we talked about and organized and put rosters together and had meetings and did all these things. Uh, but we really never seemed to do anything. And I, I became really uncomfortable with that. And I thought to myself, what, are we, what am I personally going to do about it? And I, I, the journey for me has been, as I've dug into the New Testament and followed the story of Jesus, I've realized that the, the New Testament, especially the, the letters of the New Testament, the book of Acts and the letters, are this amazing wrestle that the early church had of trying to work out what it meant to live like Jesus lived. In their in their individual contexts. And they're they're working hard. There's this bunch of ordinary people who've had this encounter with Jesus, especially the disciples who'd spent three years with him, and now Jesus is gone. They have the Holy Spirit and they're trying to work out how do we continue this vision? How do we keep working this out? And we can see that there were things that were really important to them. They actually took this job really, really seriously to do this. Um let me just, I don't know if you, there are little verses that, like, you know, we learned Bible verses, I did in Sunday school, and they uh, were really nice, uh, but around them often there were other verses that you generally just sort of glossed over. Or you emphasised one part of a passage without looking at the other part of the passage. I have to put my glasses on now. Um, it's terrible. The older I get, the shorter my arms get. And um uh, but in one john chapter two, like there's stuff in one john about, you know, uh loving each other and doing all those things, and a lot of that stuff I had them as Bible passages in my wedding. Uh but there's bits that we, we gloss over. I think there's reasons we gloss over them, but let me read this to you. It's from one John chapter two, verses three to six. It says this now by this we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Do you get it, right? Whoever says I have come to know him but does not obey his commandments is a liar and in such a person the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says I abide in him ought to walk just as he walked. I came to realise that, that the issue for us as church is not that we don't have the right information. Sometimes we even have inspiration, we get inspired. What we don't have is really good implementation of what we actually, if we're really honest with ourselves, know that Jesus says we should do. But we find ways to skirt around it, like we don't read that verse very often. Or we do what... um uh, Martin Luther, he didn't like the legalism of the book of James, so he just ripped it out of his Bible and didn't bother reading it. We do it. We selectively choose what we do. And I realize I do that, but Jesus had this clear picture. Jesus knew what he was on about, right from, we read it at the start of Luke's gospel, don't we? I've come to set the prisoner free. You know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to do all these things, to change the world, to change the fabric of society, that there would be no more... Uh, there would be no more disease. There'll be no no more disaster. There'll be no all, all these things that God is going about fixing. Jesus says, "I come to it." the The Hebrew word for that is shalom, this place of where everything is right, everything's in its right place. There's no poverty. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's there's no one that lords it over everyone else. Everyone just lives in this place of perfection where God is at the heart of his community and everything is good. And Jesus is working towards that and he talks about it and he explains it in all sorts of different ways and the disciples follow him around for three years and they see him teach on it, they see him act on it, they see the way he treats not just the insiders but the outsiders, the way he welcomes everyone, the way he eats with people, very publicly eats with people that no one else would eat with. It's all um, it's all very clear what Jesus is trying to do. And then the early church say, how do we do that too? Perhaps the scariest verse, the uh, scariest passage for me that really makes me shudder every time I read it is uh, from Matthew 25. And Jesus is talking about the day of judgment. And again, we are not very good at... um reading this or understanding this. Sorry, my iPad just keeps wanting to turn itself off. Matthew 25. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You know it, right? It's the story of the sheep and the goats, where there's all these people standing before Jesus and he says to them, uh, you know, you guys all go this way and you guys go that way because, uh, Uh, you guys are in because you cared for the poor and you visited the sick and you, you, you visited the prisoner and you gave them a glass of water and you guys, you miss out. And these guys say, well, when did we do that? And Jesus says, well, whenever you did that, you did it to me. And you guys, whenever you didn't do it, you didn't do it for me have a look at this from Sharon Gallagher this is a a quote that just scared me when I read it this is a challenging and unsettling passage followers of Christ are called to care for the stranger the naked the sick and the imprisoned these outsiders are God's insiders but even more startling is Jesus radical identification with the outsiders caring for them is caring for him Jesus doesn't just say I want you to do this for people As churches, I reckon we we can be pretty good at doing things for people. We saw that, right? At the start of COVID, when everything went into lockdown, there was all sorts of churches trying to do things for their community. It was great. People filling in little cards and putting them in their neighbours' letterboxes. If you need anything, I'll do your shopping for you. You All those things that happened. The church found something it could do and we started to do it. But Jesus takes it a whole step further. He says it's not just about what you do for people. But when you do it for people, or when you choose not to do it for people, you're actually doing it or not doing it to me. It's not just what Jesus calls us to do, but who do we do it for? The Benedictines, I don't know if you've heard of the Benedictines, are ancient monastic community. Benedict wrote this whole list of rules that his community should follow. If you're going to be a Benedictine monk, you had to follow all these things. There were hundreds of them. At the end he said, none of these should be onerous or burdensome. But um, one of the things they were really big on was hospitality about welcoming the stranger. And so the rule was if a pilgrim turned up to the monastery, they would try to see every single person they met as if it was Jesus himself. And so they would meet the visitors often by prostrating prost- yeah, I always get that word wrong prostrating themselves on the floor in front of them to welcome them because they wanted to give them honour in case it really was Jesus. Sometimes they would just bow. Sometimes sometimes a nod of the head is sufficient, but often they would lay on the floor in front of the visitors to welcome them in the name of Jesus. Do we do that? Do we see Jesus in every person that we come, come across? Sorry, my iPad did turn itself off. stupid technology Do we do that Are we are we so committed to seeing Jesus in the other The early church took it really seriously. We know that. We know that the, one of the first big arguments in the early church were that there were these bunches of widows who were not being cared for properly in Acts chapter 6. There was the Hebraic widows and the, and the, um, the Hellenistic widows, the Jewish widows and the Greek widows who were all part of the Jewish family. They weren't, um, uh, they weren't outsiders as such. They were insiders, but the church leaders, the early church leaders had to actually call, be called out on racism. How come one group of people is being treated better than another group purely based on their race? And the apostles got together and said, you know, you're right. We have to give attention to this. Some people say, look at that passage and say the apostles just wanted to go off and do the praying and do the other stuff and leave all the menial tasks to someone else. So, you know, they had the, uh, the, the, the official elders and pastors and then you had like the deacons who just did all the, Menial stuff. But the word deacon, that word, actually doesn't mean like, it means a waiter. Actually, the Greek word means a waiter, someone who moves between the table and the kitchen, someone that shares out the blessing. And so they were so so keen to make sure that the care of the orphans and the widows was part of what they did because they saw Jesus do it. They appointed people specifically for it, people full of the Spirit. You had to be full of the spirit and the wisdom to do this. This wasn't just a a menial task. You had to be somewhere. You You had to have a relationship, a mature faith and a relationship with God that could help you be the person that God was calling you to be to make sure that the widows were cared for. They took it really seriously. They understood this. That's why John writes later on, if you say you love Jesus, then you can show the evidence of that by doing what Jesus did. Now, you guys have been talking about that a lot, Mike tells me. Trying to get this balance right, this model of um, being with Jesus, being like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. Is that right? Did I get it right? I cut and pasted from his email perfectly. Excellent. This is how we do spiritual formation. This is how we actually become mature believers is all of those things. Be with Jesus, be like him and do what he did. And I reckon... Um, the do what jesus did becomes one of the hardest things as an american pastor i read one of his books and he said um people used to come to him, young people especially come to him to say what should i do with my life i'm trying to work out what what i should do with my life and he said well, it was really easy the bible says, do what, just do what jesus said heal the sick uh heal the sick raise the dead cast out demons cleanse the leper and, pre- and preach the good news to everyone they go no 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 i didn't mean that What I meant was, you know, should I, should I, should I follow this career or this career? Should I get this job? Should I? He goes, well, that really doesn't matter. Pick one of those and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. You know, the mandate of Jesus is really clear here. We have a context that we work stuff out in, but we're called to be like him. We're called to do what Jesus did. We're called to continue the mission of Jesus. And this is what defines our spirituality not just whether we pray enough now I'm all into prayer don't get me wrong but if prayer doesn't lead to action it becomes like uh, just breathing in so I want you to do this for a minute for the next minute only breathe in okay and then after that for the next two minutes we'll only breathe out what happens if that if you do that what happens if all you could do would breathe in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd be, we'd be calling the ambulance and uh, we'd, we'd make the news or something of some weird thing that happened at some church. Um, prayer and mission are like these two beats. We breathe in and we breathe out. We breathe in God's presence and we breathe out God's presence in mission and in justice and in action in the world. And we have to have both of them in balance. That's true spirituality. James one twenty seven, which is actually the verse I want to talk about today, um, and one of those verses again. Martin Luther ripped it out of his Bible, and we try not to read it too much because it's a bit too confronting. Uh, this is from the Passion translation, which I really like. True spirituality is that is uh, true spirit. Yeah, true spirituality that is pure in the eyes of our Father God is to make a difference in the lives of the orphans and widows in their troubles, and to refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. There it is. If you want to know what, you know, in a world where people talk about spirituality all the time, if you want to know what true spirituality is, there it is. Let's um, maybe work backwards. To refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. What does that mean? Well, yeah, and, and, and here's the thing, right? I think even as church, we're actually really selective about which of those values we're happy to follow and which ones we're happy to not be corrupted by. And depending where you sit, look at America right now, right? Where you sit on the political spectrum decides which of the which of the world's values you're happy to have and not happy to have. And we define ourselves by left and right. We define ourselves by, by conservative or progressive. We define ourselves by all these things that's not actually going back and saying, what's Jesus saying? Not on one side or the other, on both sides, right? What are the world's values that we shouldn't be corrupted by? There's moral things. There's ethical things. There's, there's the way we react with money. I've got a friend who runs a monastic community in, uh, in San Francisco and his community did a little experiment one day. They all got together and one Wednesday night they all came and they all brought their budgets for the year, of how much money they earned and where they spent it all. And they put it on the table and they all looked at each other's finances. Who's got a home group meeting this week? (laughs) You know, that's an area that we don't talk about in church, right? That's our private stuff. We don't talk about where we spend our money. As long as we give our 10% to the church or, you know, 3.5% if you actually do the averages. if we, As long as we do those things then everything will be okay. We can we can excuse ourselves of what we do with our finances. And we certainly don't want to be held accountable for that. So we refuse to be corrupted by the world's values, but we also are called by, by James, the brother of Jesus, to make a difference in the lives of orphans and widows. Your spirituality is defined by what sort of difference you make in the lives of orphans and widows. That scared me when I read it. It's really confronting. I'm not, I'm not you know, I, it's really easy for me to sit here, uh, to stand here and preach that, and I don't want you to feel like I'm beating you over the head with a stick because I'm beating myself over the head with a stick most of all because it's really confronting. Why orphans and widows? Yeah, and certainly in Jesus' time, they were the most vulnerable people, Right? If, if you were a widow, you lost everything. You didn't get an inheritance. You lost everything. It was up to your family and your community to make sure you got fed. That's why the thing in Acts 6 was so crazy, that within the church there were people who were not being cared for. Orphans and widows fall victim to the system. A system that creates injustice for, for women and children creates injustice for all of society. It tears at the fabric of what society is. And here's, here's where I'll, I'll tell one Baptist World Aid story that I know that helping women and children actually works. It actually changes things. I want to show you a photo. This is a um, lady, we'll call her um, Sockham. I'm not going to tell you her real name because in Baptist World Aid we... Try and protect that sort of stuff, but uh, this is the lady I met in Cambodia when I was there in February this year, and you can see her. And sorry, the lady with the the pinky, the purple cardigan. The other lady is uh, works for one of our partners in uh, in Cambodia. But can you see the little veggie patch that she's got there? So this woman, Sokum, was uh, part of a community that uh, nine years ago, Baptist World Aid, through one of our partners on the ground, uh moved into and they joined our program. This woman has three children. All three children were um accepted into the sponsorship program. And uh that meant that the whole community. We don't just we don't give money to kids. We actually we actually support the whole community. And so this woman um and her family were part of this community group that was established. Her kids got to uh, be involved in after school kids clubs. Uh, that helped them with their learning. She got some advice on agriculture. She got some advice on how to grow plants better. And she got to join a community savings group where all the people in the community put a little bit of money in and they commit to how much they're going to put in each week or each month. And um, uh, they can borrow money back from that. Now we seed fund that with 300 US dollars. That's what we do. And all the rest of the money comes from the, from the community of people putting, we saw another savings group that had been going about uh, six or seven years, and so they said, "How much money have you got?" They said, "Between us, we have about fifteen thousand US dollars, just in our savings that we can borrow back from." And so, uh, so she she was uh, took some money out of. She borrowed some money from the savings group, and she bought herself a couple of pigs, and she bred those pigs. I don't know if you know anything about pigs, but they breed like rabbits pigs and so so she so she bred these pigs. So she had a whole heap of pigs and she sold all of those pigs and she bought two cows and then she bred the cows this is actually you can't really sit all that well but this is uh, now all her cows she had uh, 15 cows and she just not long before we got there she'd taken five of those cows and sold them to the market for 700 us dollars each and with that three and a half thousand dollars she was building herself a new house and so, it was really, I, I don't have photos I can show you because they have children in them and we don't uh, show you photos of children without their express permission. But, uh, there's two houses. There's the original house on her block, which would be a quarter, no, not even that, small little wooden house up on stilts that all of her, her husband is a labourer, a truck driver. He goes away for months at a time trying to drive trucks and earn money. Um, uh, this small basically one room on stilts wooden ramshackle thing that they lived in and then right next door to it they're building this big house where it's got rooms and it's got bedrooms and it's got space and it's got a toilet just outside rather than uh, just the kids going to the toilet anywhere in the garden amongst the crops that they then eat and she is now uh, making money she is now paying for her kids to go to school, her kids are getting really good education, her kids are giving back to the community and helping other younger kids learn in other ways. She's part of the savings group and now she works as a health worker in her village, teaching people, teaching other mums how to clean their house and how to wash their hands. And she said, you know, my kids are nowhere near as sick as they used to be. Our family's healthy. We're, we're, we're eating good food and we, we've got enough money not only to buy food but to help put money back in to help the rest of our community. And the whole community, nine years, we only do a project for nine years, they were just graduating, nine years the whole community had lifted itself out of poverty just from an investment of a few dollars. We live in this world that says there are, there are poor people all around the world and it's just their circumstances, they can't help themselves and actually they really, they're quite happy the way they are, they don't even want to help themselves. Let me tell you, you give a mum a chance and she will do everything she can for her kids. And to be there and see this at the end of a project was amazing. Help the women and children and you change the village. And so we're finishing up our project in this village and we're going to do it in another nearby village and we're going to do it somewhere else and we're going to do it somewhere else. And that's that's Cambodia and we do it in all sorts of places around the world. That's our model. We don't give money to the kids. We don't pay school fees. We don't build schools. We don't build hospitals. We help community work on income generation so that they can lift themselves out of poverty because they want to. This region is just uh, in the north of... Uh, Cambodia, just up near the Thai border, and all around this village are all the signs still saying there's landmines here. (laughs) And they're thriving in the midst of it. Helping women and children, helping the orphan and the widow makes a huge difference to communities. It's what we're called to do. It's what we do at Baptist World Aid. Our, Our vision, our dream is to be love and end poverty, to see a world where this shalom of Jesus actually exists. And to help the Australian church to do it. We do it on your behalf, but we're part of the Baptist family. We do it for us. We do it for Jesus and we do it for the world. So I I want to encourage you to think about, you may want to help us out financially or you may want to sponsor a child or you may want to do that sort of stuff and I can talk to you afterwards about those things. But what's happening in your own community who are the orphans and the widows that you can care for? Who are the, who are the people that need you to, to do some radical, incredible act of justice like having a cup of coffee? <laughs> Listening in a world that's so busy and so crammed with, with noise all the time. Perhaps what Jesus would do, the greatest gift Jesus could give to the world today would be, simply be to listen. So many people just need to talk. How are we creating communities of justice? How are we creating inclusive communities? Knowing that whatever we do for those people, we're doing for Jesus himself. Thanks for listening to Movement Today. If you enjoy this show, then please take a second to give us five stars, tap subscribe and tell a friend. We are available wherever you get your pods. Movement is hosted by Melinda Cousins and produced by Bruce Grace and the team at Baptist Church's SA. We'll be back next week with a special Christmas episode to wrap up 2020.